0: Uh, it's good to be with you friends uh, it's I've heard of your church. I feel like the Apostle Paul when he says, I've heard of your faith and and your works. Uh, I work with uh, our college students at our church uh, in our campus ministries at, at the University of California, Los Angeles and i uh, I know people who know you and I've heard about your reputation here for a church of great significance, a gospel witness in the San Gabriel Valley, and so this is my first time being here. I'm grateful for you and for your church and for the invitation from Pastor Rocky to preach. Uh, You have a dear man here who we love so much at our church. He's come and sat in on some of our classes at the seminary, and and that alone is something that I think is noteworthy. Uh, You want a pastor who's a learner, who's a hungry student of the Word of God, and that's what sustains a a biblical ministry and it's been a it's been a joy in my life to get to know this dear brother and I know that you benefit from his love for the word and his learning and when he asked me if I had a Sunday available to to preach uh, I was I was eager to come and be with you so thank you for having me Uh, my family's here some of them uh I think we got the majority of the family here. Uh, we have four kids, and, and one was stung by a bee a couple days ago, and he, is, he had a reaction, we'll say, um, but he's a typical guy. He, he's been stung by bees his whole life, and now he has a foot that's swollen like a football. So he's home with his mom with steroids, and we're going to do some weight training this week to try to maximize the steroids. Um, Rocky taught me about that from the football thing. Will you open your Bible to Psalm 133? Psalm 133. This is, is, I think, just such a timely passage of Scripture for us to look at together. Psalm 133. And and I, I'm sure, like many of you, love the book of Psalms. It ministers to my soul. It helps me to know how to pray when I don't know how to pray. And... I know, like you, I'm often drawn to the Psalms as a place to, to, communue, to commune with God and to, to receive help and to worship Him, and so Psalm 133 is one I'm sure that you're familiar with, and I'd like to preach from this text today and see what God has to teach us. So let me start by reading this psalm to you. It's just three verses long Let's look at it together. Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down from the mountains of Zion. For there, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. This is the very word of the living God. May he bless its reading and the preaching of his word in our hearts by way of his spirit. Father, help me to speak truth to these dear brothers and sisters. Continue to bless their church and its witness for the gospel. Be with all of those who are are with us physically present, and those who have joined us online. God, use this time in your word to instruct and build and edify and bless and encourage unity in the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church is weird these days, isn't it? It's sort of like tailgating. It's sort of like a day at the park, Uh, All churches are going through this all over the world. Uh, Some are embroiled in lawsuits with the government, and some are sitting in chairs outside. Everyone's trying to figure out how to navigate these days. And it's been challenging uh, for so many. It's a time of tremendous difficulty, a time when what we're used to is not what we get and what we prefer is, is not how things are. And it's a time where so many churches are going through difficult disagreements. Disagreements about the nature of what's happening in the world today. Uh, polarizing discussions among leaders, uh, among church people about how best to handle uh, having your kids at, at home instead of at school, and, and 10,000 other things that are, are cramping our style and giving us trouble. But here you are at church, or zooming in, which works too, and I want you to imagine with me that after service, one of these Sundays, you, you go home and you're getting out of your car, unloading the kids and doing the thing that you, you've done all these weeks, and your neighbor sees you unloading and, and he asks you a question. He's not a church-going person and he sees all the trouble you go through to come to church, packing up the kids, most of them at least, however many you bring that day, depending on all the troubles. Getting in and out afterwards or whatever your particular religious traditions are. Making it back home finally. And your neighbor asks you, you know, I noticed you guys go every Sunday morning. What is it like? What's it like to go to church? And there's a lot of ways you could answer that question, right? You could talk about some of the difficulties of these days, uh, but say that these days are over. How would you answer that question? What's it like to be a part of a church? What's it like to be with God's people? Imagine with me if you told your neighbor, well, I'm glad you asked. I'd love to tell you what it's like. It's it's like oil on the beard. Even Aaron's beard, dear neighbor. And maybe your neighbor would say, I don't get it. What What is it What is it like? Could you maybe put it another way? And you could say to your neighbor, yeah, of course, dear neighbor. I'd love to tell you what it's like to be a part of the church, what it feels like to, to be in fellowship, as we call it. It's like do. Your neighbor says, excuse me, did you say do? Yeah, it's like do coming down upon the mountains of Zion. It's like the dew of Hermon. And your neighbor at that point would probably turn on his heel, walk away and say, all right, well, see you ya, see ya next trash day. <laughs> it's a strange conversation, isn't it? Oil in a beard, dew on mountains. Is that what you'd describe being with God's people? to be like? What is it like to be with God's people? What is it like every single Sunday Sunday to gather with your local church family? How do you describe it? What kind of words would you use to capture the, the joy of belonging in Christian fellowship? What is the experience of true spiritual unity like? And what does it mean to you? How does it contribute to your life when it's taken away, as as we've experienced to some degree over this last year? How has that challenged you? How has that affected your thinking? How has it made you feel? How does spiritual unity influence the way that you serve in this church, that you lead your family and devotions, that you gather together to worship? This morning, I want to talk to you about Psalm 133, these seemingly enigmatic illustrations and exclamatory phrases that are inspired by God and intended to move us all to a greater appreciation and understanding of the preciousness of fellowship. These verses inspired by God and useful for God's people for all of these years since the time of the the Hebrew Bible and those worshipers to today, uh, verses that have been used by God's people to express Praise and value of something that God Himself praises and values. This ancient hymn is composed in praise to spiritual unity. Disunity, as you know, is a problem as old as Cain and Abel. It's disunity that split Judah and Israel in the civil war in in Bible times. It's been a pernicious problem in local churches uh, all the way back to Philippi, the book of Philippians. The call for harmony in churches is one of the most repeated calls in the Bible from cover cover of the New Testament uh, sometimes even called out by name in the case of Euodia and synctache uh, in Corinth there was factions you guys know about this You're, you've been studying the book of Corinthians there was factions some claiming the name of Paul some Apollo some Cephas and really spiritual people saying well we only follow Jesus in Philippi there were the Paulinists and the anti paulinists and You've heard, as you've worked through the New Testament, verses like 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Or in Corinthians 3, where he says, bearing with one another, if you have a complaint against one another, uh, I ask that you would uh, forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you and above all things, put on love, which binds together in perfect harmony all over the New Testament, First Peter 3, be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another. God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Or Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to ensure the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Repeated claims and, and demands of unity among God's people is a widespread emphasis in the New Testament. And it's hard to pinpoint anything more repeatedly insisted upon in the Bible and I wonder if sometimes we're suspicious of a call to unity, because y- y'all are, are Bible-believing Christians, and, and you know that, that sometimes those calls, especially in our culture, for, you know, on the side of the bus it says now, we're all in this together, and a call to unity is a call to uh, kind of believe everything and anything in our society, that there should be no divisions about what one person believes and another person believes. And so maybe you're rightly suspicious about calls to unity because our culture values unity. At least they say they do until they meet some intolerant Christians who say Jesus is the the way, the truth, and the life, and then they're not that interested in talking about unity anymore. But I think what we have before us in the case of Psalm 133 is a reminder of just how sweet and fundamental Christian unity is. And at the outset, I don't want you to get me wrong, Scripture calls us to defend the faith, to divide from apostasy and unbelief, that we're unified around the truth, the integrity of the gospel. If we don't have that, the the church's mission is lost. We don't dilute the truth to accommodate as many as possible. Sound doctrine is essential for unity in the church because only true unity is unity in the truth. First John 1, one through four, We don't compromise for unity. We don't negotiate in the gospel, and we're all aware of a kind of doctrinal laxity or uh, that, that pretends to accomplish spiritual unity. Uh, but I wonder if we're as aware of doctrinal overexuberance that sometimes prohibits it. And the Apostle Paul's aware of both, and you've seen that in First Corinthians. We don't wanna be indifferent about truth in a quest for unity. But this isn't about denominational differences or doctrinal distinctions. This isn't about uniting with the Roman Catholic Church or something about that. Psalm 133 is simply a, a song composed by someone who'd experienced the joy of being with God's people. It's really a song that translates so well to remind us of the foundational and inherent beauty of spiritual harmony. To be in accord with the people of God is desirable and praiseworthy, and to have harmony in our local churches is so important to our testimony, to a watching world of love for the body of Christ that we have for God and for one another. And that unity is a pleasing aroma to God and a life-giving testimony to the vitality and importance of, of praising spiritual unity. And Psalm 133 is a celebration of the blessings of covenant fellowship seen in the unity of brothers and sisters. So let's look at this song together and remind ourselves of how good it is to experience unified fellowship in a local church. And I've had a lot of phone calls over the last few months of guys I went to seminary with, of, of guys who are involved in, in, in our Doctor of Ministry program who serve in churches around the world. And, and their churches are struggling with unity right now. I mean, some people would would acknowledge that Christians will fight over just about anything. I mean, some churches are fighting about... You know the regulations they're having to do. Some churches are fighting about whether they can they can leave their Zoom cameras on in a congregational meeting or not. You know, whatever it is, there's lots of things that Christians fight over. And and I think looking at a little song like this, a gem of a song, only three verses long, helps us to prize and praise something that God prizes and praises. It helps us to to reinforce in our hearts the importance of of membership in a local church, of belonging to one another, of caring for one another, of putting aside our personal preferences and valuing what God values in spiritual unity. So let's look in praise of spiritual unity. Let's start by surrounding this song. Look what it says at the very top of Psalm 133. It says, a song of ascents, a song of David. A sense or a special group of songs within the, the book of Psalms, the Psalter, uh, comprising the songs going from 120 to 134. They were often called pilgrim songs. They were the songs that were sung by the traveling pilgrims on their way back to Jerusalem from different regions and tribes and families as people would travel and come together for the purpose of the festal gatherings, Passover, the, the festival of booths, uh, the, all, all these different gatherings that the Jewish people had in their history when they would come together in these travels to worship the one true God. These were a collection of songs that they would sing along the way. The pilgrims likely sang Psalms 132 and 134 on approaching and entering and leaving the sanctuary. Psalm 133 and 34 are both about unity and and ministry respectively. and, And the pilgrims would have sang those at the annual feast and festivals. Psalm 134 was about the return home, and so Psalm 133 is a reflection of the gathering on that festival, what it was like to be together with all of God's people as the 12 tribes and gathered together for this, this special time of worship and celebration and praise of God. 133 is at the center of these three songs that are Zion songs. They all talk about Zion, that that mountain on which Jerusalem was positioned, a place identified all over the Bible. How many times have you seen the word Zion in the Psalms? Zion in the Bible, it's the mountains where Jerusalem is, a, a place that God had identified for particular blessing, a place where the temple was, a place where God met his people sometimes called a holy hill uh, Jerusalem's locale a place where heaven met earth and this song was written by David the fourth and final psalm of a sense that are attributed to him and so there's blessings in this song the way it opens has a blessing to it It songs almost like psalm one blessed is the man when it says blessed are those who are good and delighted by the dwelling together of brothers. Let's look at this song in three parts. First, in praise of spiritual unity, that's verse 1. And then let's look at these two portraits of spiritual unity, verses 2 and 3. And then let's look at the power of spiritual unity in the second half of verse 3. So we'll just look at this in three simple parts, kind of looking at this song, in praise of spiritual unity, Two portraits of spiritual unity and the power of spiritual unity. It's my prayer that you'll understand why God put this in the Bible, Psalm 133, and how it can be of great benefit to you and to your church and to your family. So let's start with in praise of spiritual unity. Verse 1, look at how it starts. Behold. Behold. It's a word that just seeks to grab your attention. It's Psalm 133 and Psalm 134 are the only ones that begin with behold. Behold. And it's just asking you to to pay attention. it It pounds on the pulpit. It says, "Hey, listen up. There's something to look at, something to observe, something that is worthy of your attention. Sometimes this song is classified as a wisdom song because it has something to teach people, something to show people. And by observing and praising and 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 asking for your attention at the very outset, The celebration that it provokes is when God's people pursue unity and reminds us what life lacks when unity is not present. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. One author says certainly even the absence of unity can teach the blessing of unity. And sometimes that strong exhortation to behold the beauty of unity is the most meaningful to us when we're in the middle of a time of disunity or difficulty or disagreement. So This exhortation comes to us simply by declaring the inherent beauty and value of spiritual unity. Behold how good and delightful when brothers dwell, the Hebrew says, also at one. What a simple statement. For brothers to dwell together in unity. That's a phrase that's used in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 25 uh, that I think maybe reminds us what the original kind of meaning and usefulness of that phrase was of brothers dwelling together. In Deuteronomy, it was talking about a physical family, actual brothers, literal brothers, children of the same father, spiritual community. In the Old Testament, it was natural family, extended family. But it was also used to speak of all those who lived in proximity, all those who dwelled together. And, and as the Psalms adopted that phrase, it wasn't just talking about uh, the brothers of blood brothers. It was talking about that kind of familial connection that these believers had together. That's why it says the emphasis in this, this verse is on dwelling together. There's something closer than blood reflected here. There's something about oneness of heart and purpose. And as these pilgrims in this Old Testament setting would make their way to Jerusalem, you can imagine the difficulties. I mean, if it's hard to pack up the minivan for church sometimes, imagine if you had to go on foot in the ancient Near East from some place far off all the way up the mountain to Jerusalem. I mean, that, that's a significant ask. For your wife. Right gentlemen. That's a lot to put together. A lot to pack in bags. A lot of food to take care of. A lot of logistics. And they did this multiple times a year. And so. As the the groups got ready to travel, the tensions would rise undoubtedly as people would seek after the same resources for lodging and food and water and and the rivalries among the different clans could disrupt the peace of of encampment after days of weary travel. I mean, all these fellow worshipers... uh, bouncing along the road to Jerusalem and then finally arriving in the Holy City and it being so crowded, you could imagine how important it was for them to remember why they were there and how good it truly was because even with the real unity they experienced, there was certainly regular difficulties. And as they thought about being a family, as being God's family, And they faced all these problems along the road, bringing their kids along, logistics of food and water, disagreements along the way, the danger in the ancient world of traveling, robbers and thieves. And then finally to arrive in Jerusalem and the congestion and the crowds and tempers running high as travelers finally there, weary from their journey, trying to find relatives and places to stay and a sea of humanity, jostling and heads bobbing in crowded streets as worshipers seek lodging, bumping together as they prepare for the festival and necessities for a week-long stay, all done. And then you have to pack up and go home after that. So important to hear these words, good and pleasant, good and pleasant. The word good emphasizes the objective and inherent nature of the unity. It's good. In and of itself, it's good. And that recalls the word in the Hebrew Bible that God uses to describe his creation. It's, it's intrinsically good. It's, it's blessed by God. And then that word pleasant is more of a subjective word, a word like delightful or lovely. That's how we're to think about being together as the family of God, being with other believers. It's good and it's pleasant. And we don't always think about church that way. I think that's one of the blessings of the age of the corona, if the, I mean, it's, it's rare we think about the blessings of the age of Corona. But one of the blessings has to be how much we long for the way things used to be. Not just the convenience of air conditioning, amen? The convenience, not just the conveniences of, of soft, you know, padded chairs and the comfort of the things we're used to. But remember what it was like to just come to church. And it's not just the experience and the packaging and the, the external parts of it, it's, there was something really good about church. And there's something good in this version of church too, something good and pleasant. And that's really what is underneath every positive experience when Christians unite themselves together in the local church. The goodness and the pleasantness has to do with their spiritual togetherness. It says how good and delightful when brethren dwell also at one. It's good. It's both shown to be empirically good by God and it's pleasant. It's, it's wonderful to experience. And what is it? It's the dwelling together. You know, the prerequisite for unity is, is plurality. You can't have unity with yourself. You can't participate in the blessings of unity if you live your Christian life in isolation. And this song invites those of us who are more introverted or more disposed towards isolation to be reminded of what a joy it is to enter into fellowship, to be with God's people. Unity is about togetherness. It's about something to, be, to behold, something to observe, something worth striving for. We all need to guard ourselves from detachment, from isolation. We need to make sure that we're valuing and prizing unity when our kids were really little and we'd pull into the church parking lot on a Sunday morning, we didn't always feel like saying hooray. There was some things that happened on the way to church that just were neither good nor pleasant. You ever had that experience? But we made it a habit when our kids were really little in the back seat, as soon as we pulled into the, over the curb and into the church parking lot, we would all say, yay, church. <laughs> Yay, church. And sometimes I'd grip my teeth and say, yay, church. But we always said, yay, church, because we needed to remind ourselves what this text is saying. Behold, how good and delightful when brothers dwell together also as one. We wanted our kids to know that the church wasn't just a building that we gathered in. It wasn't just religious rituals that were part of their, their lives from before they could even remember but we wanted them to know that being with God's people is something that God wanted for us. It was something that God declared to be good and something that was to their benefit. It was pleasant. We had a little rhyme. You know it. Everybody knows it. Uh, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. You know the thing with your hands? Yeah, you got it. Let's do it with me. I'll, I'll teach you my version. I think it's better. It's, it's more theologically precise. Okay, It's in Latin, so hang on. No, I'm kidding. So here's the church, here's the steeple, you open the doors, the church is the people. You like it? It's better. Catechize it. It's good. So erase whatever you taught about, look at the doors and see the people. No, the church is the people. The church isn't a steeple, it's not a building, it's brethren who dwell together in unity. It's those of us who worship God, it's those of us who have entrusted our souls to Jesus open the doors. The church is the people and unity is about togetherness. That's why church membership matters. Belonging to a church, having accountability to leaders in the church, to pastors in the church. We can never get past how inherently good that is. It's rooted in the the nature of God as a triune being. God is three persons united in his love for each other. And theologians from Athanasius to Jonathan Edwards all pointed to the existence of harmony in things like music being derived from harmony in the Godhead. And if that's the case, harmony in the body of Christ is certainly derived from the very nature of God's triunity. One theologian says it this way, In the lively harmony of the three persons, the radiant love, the overflowing goodness of this God, there is a beauty entirely at odds with the single person gods of the other world religions. And because this God has poured out his love and life, we can also say the triunity of God is the source of all beauty. You see, spiritual unity is praiseworthy and it's something to behold because God is praiseworthy and someone to behold. And so here we all are, people from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic positions, different jobs, different interests, but we come together as a family when we worship Jesus Christ. It's good and it's praiseworthy, isn't it? It's good and it's pleasant. Do you feel that? You feel that when you come to church? Do you value that? Well, that's first, is, is to really see that praise of spiritual unity. It's something worth praising God for. Well, second, in the middle of this song, it's just two portraits of spiritual unity. The illustrations for this sermon are built right into it. There's two pictures. It's the, the things that you shared with your neighbor or that you wouldn't share with your neighbor. But that's only because we don't understand them. It's because we don't think like Hebrew people think. And to study the Bible, you've got to put yourself in its world before you bring it to your world. And Psalm 133 has these two illustrations right at the heart to show us what spiritual unity is like. Let's consider them in turn. Number one, there's precious oil upon the head. It's literally good or excellent oil. It's the good stuff. It's a special... Fragrant oil, And the first portrait of unity is an illustration involving something called the oil of consecration, and if you'd like to have a recipe for it, you can go to Exodus chapter 30, and there's a recipe for this holy anointing oil that they used in the temple that Jewish people used. They put it on the articles of the Mishkan. They uh, had holiness involved in the way they made it. The priesthood was anointed with it. It was prohibited to be made or mixed by anyone outside of the priesthood. Uh, if you're one of those multi-level marketing people who sells some kind of oil, please don't talk to me afterwards. It's not the same thing. It's totally different. You, you enjoy your peppermint oil as it cures all your diseases. It's, as for me in my house, no thank you. I prefer olive oil on pizza crust. That's my oil. So th- this is the kind of oil that's being talked about here. It was a ritual oil, a sacred oil. And the common people of Israel weren't even allowed to make it And it wasn't allowed to be put on any Gentiles. And, well, you know, our Pentecostal friends debate if they're allowed to make this oil and if they should put it on each other at church. They're missing the point entirely. The the idea here is that this was something God's people were familiar with. It was an oil that was sacred. It was part of a sacred blessing. And so here we had this special oil used in worship of the one true God a precious, valuable, sacred oil. And where is it in this illustration? Well, it says, like oil, the best on the head, going down on the beard, Aaron's beard, going down upon the opening of his robe. And so now we have beards involved. So the hipsters love this, this passage. Beards are, 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 are cool now, kind of. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher Spurgeon, you know, you know him. He has a great beard line. Growing a beard is a habit most natural, scriptural, manly, and beneficial. I don't know why I brought that out. I just want you to know how Spurgeon felt about beards. How did the Psalms feel about beards? Well, for high priests, they were just part of the uniform. The beard of the priest included the edges of the beard, according to the book of Leviticus. And, and then there was oil involved because they had pour oil on the priest's head. And, and the nature of oil, both liquid and gravity, is that it would run down. That's the tendencies of, of liquid and gravity. It flows down into the beard, onto the garments. And, and then this particular priest is mentioned in verse 2, even Aaron. So Aaron is the one who represents the entire line of priests that would follow him. Generation after generation, the the worship leaders of Israel ministering before the Lord in the temple. And all those priests, especially the high priests, represented the whole nation before God, before Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. It was the priests who spoke to God on behalf of the people and who got from God and spoke to the people. They were the middlemen, the representative, the priests. And so the priestly ministry was a representative one. They offered gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people, assuring them of the promised forgiveness and blessing that God would grant them. And then for the the songwriter to say, Aaron himself is to add gravitas. This isn't just any priest. This is the high priest, the first high priest, Moses' wingman, the one who began all of high priestly service. How is this a portrait of unity? Well, what do we have here? We have this special sacred oil that flows down over this anointed representative's head. Ultimately, the one who is representing God to the people. He's set apart. He's anointed. And ultimately, we have a figure here that shows that there's something differentiated here. But there's something also integrated here. Because it doesn't stay on his head, it flows to his robes, it, it flows down the edges of his beard. And it's telling us that there's something about spiritual unity, that something about priests and beards and oil represents. One author says it this way, Derek Kidner, the people were differentiated but also integrated as a priest in his robes, a people among whom God's blessings are not the preserve of a few, but free to spread and be shared, unifying the recipients all the more, just as the anointing oil referred to its head, and the fragrance couldn't be contained or confined, and it would flow down the priests. There's an abundance to this oil, and the poetry here is is showing that there's repetition and direction Look at the text. It says, like oil going down in the beard, going down upon the opening of his robe. And in the next illustration, the dew of Hermon is going down. And so the idea behind this picture of oil on a beard is that this unity is is really from God above. It comes down. It, it flows down. There's an abundance to it. It's not something that's, that's hard to find because it's, It's sourced in God and it flows down in abundance. It comes down and comes down and it's a a blessing from God. The unity that we seek as a local church is not something that's conjured up uh, among us. It's something that really and truly isn't manufactured, but something that's sought from God. It's something that's sacred like that oil, something supernatural. You see, what brings a people together isn't common zip codes or, or an identical experience or, or equal preferences. It's that what matters to us is that God has made us his people and Jesus Christ is precious to us. And that has a unifying power that doesn't come from below, but comes from above. Spiritual unity is something that's not conjured up, but something that's set down, sent down from heaven itself. That's the origin of all true spiritual unity. Churches can get along with one another. The people in the church can love one another truly because God has worked from above in uniting their hearts together like oil that flowed down that priest's beard, that sacred representative from God. We hear the words of Ephesians 4, When Paul says, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity isn't something we create. It's a work of the spirit of God. It is wrought by God. The Spirit creates it. It's the believer's responsibility to maintain it. And that begins with savoring its inherent worth, its divine source and goodness, acknowledging its source and strength is from above as God unifies his people. And it's not meager. It's not scant. It's abundant. And it is, isn't it? And when church lets out, people don't just pack up and run out of here. They're hanging out. Even in social distancing age, you can hardly keep Christians apart, right? We love each other. We want to be together. We see this abundance as it flows into our homes and into small groups and Bible studies. And and Christians want to be together. It's because our true spiritual unity flows down from heaven above like oil on a priest's beard. A pleasing fragrance, inherent goodness related to its divine origin. Unity is abundant, it's generous, and fellowship has that same tendency. It's not cliques, it's not in crowds, it's expansive, and it's prone to overflow. And unity like that oil makes your church smell good. A church that loves each other pleases God And it serves the people, and it's a witness to the community. If you love God, you'll love to be with God's people. Christianity is not a Lone Ranger religion. It's not just you. I mean, even Lone Ranger had Tonto. You, you can't be a by-yourself, isolated. You have to join with other believers to connect with your greater spiritual purpose. You need pastors. You need brothers and sisters to surround you. Uh, you need the church so that you can experience how holy and sacred and divine spiritual unity really is. That's the first portrait. The second is the dew of Hermon. It's another liquid illustration. This one is dew, those droplets of water that appear on grass and on surfaces in the morning or evening. Due to condensation, atmospheric moisture condenses faster than it can evaporate, resulting in the formation of water droplets. Wikipedia. So, why dew? Well, it's a certain kind of dew. It's dew associated with a particular place called Hermon, or in the Bible, usually called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was in the north of Israel, the highest peak in Israel, 9,232 feet above sea level. And what do you, what, I mean, you got water droplets, you got dew, you got condensation on the highest mountain in Israel. I've been a youth pastor for a lot of years, multiple decades, and so I can't resist telling you what this is called. It's called Mountain Dew. <laughs> do the dew. Teenagers, that was for you. Um, why? why mountain dew well it was the highest peak in Israel it was a place really i mean a lot higher than mount zion mount zion's about 3000 feet just under where jerusalem was this would have brought all these worshipers a reminder of that place some of them came from way up there mountain people it was a place where it snows in the winter and it was a place that's so crucial for I mean the whole of Israel because that snowpack is what would come down and and bring all that life-giving water in this desert land. Israel's got a similar climate to to California. We we depend on that that rainfall and that winter snowpack to come down and provide water so much more than the summer crops were dependent on a a good winter at Mount Hermon and And so to say Mount Hermon was to talk about a place of of beauty, of refreshment. It's it's a a place of snow and mountains. It's, It's kind of an arrowhead sort of picture. It's a cabin with a brush of fresh air and, you know, different than the air down here in the city where we live, the air you can see. This is a place of wonderful refreshment common with this illustration of spiritual unity. In what way is it like unity? Well, the dew of Hermon provided life. It provided blessing and nourishment and support and strengthening. And the nature of spiritual unity is the same. It provides growth and stimulation. Just think about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, one Sunday at church should be more spiritually refreshing than a weekend in the mountains or a trip to the lake. Herman was precipitous and snow-capped, this distant mountain, verdant and lush. But look at what this illustration says. It says, like the dew of Hermon going down upon the mountains of Zion. That's not how meteorologically it works. There wasn't, that's like saying, it's like the snow of of the San Bernardino Mountains coming to La Puente. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Right? It's not going to snow in downtown Los Angeles. It's not going to snow much on the little tiny hills around here. But that's the picture. The picture was Mount Zion is where the temple was. It was where the worshipers went to gather. And it was dry and it was arid and it was a lower altitude. And though it would have moisture and dew, it didn't have that kind of magnificent snow and water and, and lushness that Mount Hermon had. But the poetry is saying that when God's people would gather at Jerusalem, when they would ascend to Mount Zion singing this song, it was as if they were in a place that was so bountiful, so Edenic, so perfect, so lush, so wonderful. And it wasn't that it had green grass, because it didn't. It's that it had sweet, refreshing fellowship. Spiritual unity was like dew of Hermon going down on the mountains of Zion, meteorologically impossible, snow in LA in July. It's not going to happen. And if it did, it would be divine. Muter explains the illustrations this way. These two distinct illustrations. First, the oil of consecration, pointing to unity as a sacred blessing from God, creating the priestly people Israel was meant to be. The second, dealing with a miracle. Herman's dew falling on Zion's hill. Herman, that chief mountain of the north. Zion, the chief mountain of the south. That they should be united in this way could only be an act of God such then said david is the unity of the family of god's people a god wrought miracle you see this second portrait reminds us that unity is life giving and it provides an atmosphere that's sweet do you realize we were I was talking with some of the brothers this morning about missions at your church praise god that your church is sacrificial and and kingdom minded enough to be involved in God's global aims as you support missionaries around the world who preach the gospel to the nations. I mean, do you realize that you have more in common with another believer on the other side of this world than you do with your unbelieving relatives? I mean, that's that's the nature of being a Christian, of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That that's true that That we're marked by God's love and his love for the saints is what transforms us and delivers us. 1 John 3.14, we know that we've crossed over from death to life because we love the brothers. That love that you have for your fellow saints in this church is evidence of God's work in you. Evidence of God's moving you from sin to salvation, from darkness to light And because you've experienced that salvation from God in Christ, you have everything that matters in common with those who've experienced that salvation in Christ. And so we guard and protect what God has accomplished. We try to teach each other and model for each other the power of togetherness, the power of fellowship. Well, this little poem concludes with just that point. It's giving us the praise of spiritual unity that it's commendable to God. And then it gives us those portraits of spiritual unity. And finally and briefly, it shows us the power of spiritual unity. What an interesting end to a poem. Because there, the Lord, or Yahweh, commanded the blessing, life forever. What is the power of spiritual unity? There, the word there, because there, Yahweh commanded the blessing is a reference to the mountains we just talked about, specifically Zion. The immediate reference to there is Zion, the place where Jerusalem was, the place where the temple was, the place where the worshipers gathered in unity. He says there God commands the blessing of life forevermore. And there's plenty of blessings that come from unity. Its inherent sweetness proves that. But the particular blessing that this song inspired by God closes with is the blessing of eternal life. This isn't just a glimpse of personal immortality. But this is that ever-continuing vitality of life forever that marks people who worship an eternal God. Life forever is the point of all this talk on unity. There's a blessing that falls when you are unified to God's people and unified to God. When our spiritual unity is seen as it really is, what we realize is we're not just linked up for life, we're linked up for eternity. We're linked up for life forevermore. And that's the blessing that verse three falls by God's command. When Yahweh speaks, he accomplishes. When God says life, it happens every time. And Zion here is key. Zion is the place that pictured and portrayed the dwelling place of God. It's where heaven and earth met. It's not that unity creates eternal life. But when we relish and cherish the unity that God relishes and cherishes, we share in His sort of life. Unity among God's people every Sunday is a foretaste of heaven. And that's why we guard fellowship in the body. That's why we don't tolerate division in a local church. That's why we are committed to preserving peace and love and joy in fellowship. Because fellowship, true spiritual unity, the concern of this song is what's on our minds and hearts but the people who sang this song walking up to that holy hill they had the same DNA they were all Hebrew people a unity known by God's Israel in this song was only known in part but us as partakers of the gospel, as ministers of the new covenant, as those who have received the spirit of God poured out upon all of God's people, all of us made partakers and participants, all united under the great high priest Jesus who prayed to his father for perfect unity to be a witness of our unbreakable connection to the triune God in John 17, a prayer that God answered in sending the Holy Spirit makes us drink deeply from the gospel My friends, and we're reminded that David sang about something in Psalm 133 that he only knew in part. He only tasted a piece of this. This beautiful diversity, this perfect unity that we find in the gospel reminds us that Christ transcends racial and ethnic diversity and ensures a perfect unity among his people. Distinctions that we see but we don't care about because they are erased in the salvation plan of God. So in the end, we see worshipers in the book of Revelation from every tribe and tr- tongue and nation and in In the gospel and in the church, unity is not uniformity. It's a glorious commitment that all of us have to be one underneath King Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, the one who gave himself up for us. It's that passage, John 17, where Jesus prays to the Father for true spiritual unity in fulfillment of the prayer that we know when Jesus said in this world, that this world may know you. When we go from here today, as we are oh, out to take the Lord's Supper and then we, we go from here, it's good to go. It's good to know that we've been with God's people. And as we remember what it's like, because part of taking the Lord's Supper is the, the commonness of the cup. The brokenness of a a single loaf, and I know that wasn't a loaf, but in some factory somewhere, that little wafer, it's the idea. The commonness of that is a reminder to us of how glorious it is to be with God's people. And when we go from here, and we tell our neighbors and our unbelieving relatives how much we love to be at church, how much we love to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ, I think we can say it in language like this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together. It's like oil, the best, on the head going down the beard, Aaron's beard going down on the the edges of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon going down upon the mountains of Zion because there Yahweh commanded the blessing, life forever. What David saw only in a glimmer, oil and dew are one thing, but to see God's plan unfold in heaven, a world of unity and love, foretaste in the church where Christ is all in all for all eternity, the harmony and peace and unity that points us to a foretaste of eternal life, worship and fellowship and joy that we share in our local churches and in christian churches gathered all over the face of this planet is a foretaste of the eternal life and praise we have forever and ever in the presence of christ so we take the bread and we take the cup and we thank god for accomplishing the profound miracle that is true spiritual unity let me pray for you father thank you for these dear saints And for this precious church that you've built here. A church united around that most essential thing. That Jesus Christ is Lord. As we prepare our hearts to take this supper, use this time to remind us of the unity that you've accomplished at the cross. Bringing together Jew and Gentile. People from every tribe and tongue and nation that will make up all of heaven for all eternity. And may we guard and value the togetherness we share as believers, the family that it is to be a child of God, to participate in this foretaste of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.